Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. My mission is simple. To make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere. And I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. I'll be with my friends. Just trying to make a little money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate, teach, put this like today in context. Call me, 1-800-743-CBC, or tweet me, at Jim Kramer. The growth selling may be over, and the value selling may have begun. Hey, that's my takeaway from today's action. A good day where the Dow gained 406 points, S&P jumped 1.89%, and the growth-heavy Nasdaq rallied 3.41%. Yep, Wall Street's once again discovering why we like growth and why we've disliked value for years on end. So allow me to explain the timeline. For almost this entire month, two things were self-evident. Growth is dangerous and value is safe. The growth stocks had gone untethered right as the Federal Reserve decided to start raising interest rates. And we know that historically higher rates are a huge headwind for growth names. It's been a true nightmare for growth investors, a nightmare that we've been trapped in since J-PAL turned hawkish in late November. Somehow, though, many investors didn't get the memo that growth had gone out of style until Netflix reported. And, of course, Netflix imploded and that was a week and a half ago, reporting an unexpected slowdown that caused the stock to immediately shed more than 20% of its value and bring down a whole cohort that's gigantic. But in retrospect, the pain has been so intense for so long that rather than marking the beginning of the big growth sell-off, I am beginning to wonder whether the Netflix meltdown was more like the denouement. Why? Because one by one, we had big industrial value plays, GE, 3M, Boeing, and Caterpillar, report subpar numbers that made us question the legitimacy of the value rally. These companies are all fueling this, feeling the sting of supply chain woes, inflation, port congestions, and worst of all, COVID. Yes, they had to work hard to staff or to overcompensate their freight needs. The deep integration of semiconductors into every aspect of industrial production surprised us, made us realize again that these manufacturers need older chips that in many cases have been phased out. Sure, they were being produced, but not nearly as many as we need. Oh, and those pesky port problems, they're at the heart of the supply chain crisis. Finally, COVID. These aren't the kinds of companies that can send their people home to work from home. They need the workers to show up at the factories in person. But those factories became breeding grounds for the virus. Put it all together, these industrial value stocks suddenly looked a lot less like safe havens than people thought they were. But that wasn't enough to turn this whole market on its head. What the growth cohort needed was to remove the sting of Netflix and the Fed's harsh turn to make that happen. They needed a champion, a reminder that growth can still produce good results. And you know what? It came along in the form of service now. Yes, 
We got it last Wednesday when ServiceNow reported a tremendous quarter, one devoid of... Uh, one devoid of supply chain woes, COVID problems, port congestion, delays, semiconductor shortages. Those were all the problems of the so-called value industrials, not a cloud-based software stock like ServiceNow. At the same time, Boeing reported and it had every problem under the sun, labor costs, raw material costs, inflation, something you never see from growth stocks, nasty cost overruns and charges. Oh, Cal, I had, I had, a, I had conversations with Boeing and conversations with ServiceNow, and they were so different. Bill McDermott came on Squawk on the Street, and he was so bullish. The amount, the amount of business ServiceNow is doing, it was a stark contrast. The juggernaut ServiceNow versus the grounded entity that is Boeing. Now, the night before, Microsoft reported the growth haters came out in full force, betting that there had to be something wrong with the quarter related to Azure, their cloud business. The stock initially got clocked for 20 points, seeing that the 270s in after hours trading. But when CFO Amy Hood calmly had some very good things to say about Azure midway through the conference call, knowledgeable buyers took Microsoft right back up to the 290s. Again, no ports, no COVID, no semiconductor issues. Thursday, we got the coup de grace, Apple, which delivered an astounding quarter with only one small product line dinged by production loads. Yes, inflation was mentioned, but it didn't really play a role. And management did say that any product shortages had already been solved for the first quarter. A great company that makes things and makes profits. But at the same time, a fintech, one of the older ones, but a fintech nonetheless, MasterCard, reported an absolutely blockbuster quarter. And he even mentioned the cross-border business was picking up. That's travel-related business. It's a COVID reopening play with no supply chain, no semiconductor issues, no factories to get sick at. Then on Friday, Robinhood, the poster child for disappointing growth names, reported an awful quarter, one of the worst of the year, yet its stock is up higher. Now, we didn't learn until later that night that Kathy Wood, Wall Street's highest profile growth manager, was creating a bottom herself with her investing. But the fact that she could even do that mattered tremendously. Then Chevron, the darling of the value bulls, missed numbers. Now, how is that possible, given the rise in oil? Well, it turns out there's a whole lot of moving parts to own the oils. It was a rude awakening that value in the oil patch is mighty hard to understand. Now, let's go full circle. Today, we learned that Netflix CEO Reed Hastings bought $20 million of his own stock at an average price of $388, a nice discount from today's $427 price. Oh, why would Hastings do that? Doesn't he know that streaming services are stuck in the mud? I think the answer is simple. Insiders only buy for one reason, because they believe their stock's going higher. Does he know more than us? He's a CEO. Yeah, I I think he does. Oh, and a reminder, remember how the growth stock sell-off started a long time ago, back in November? Do you know that Netflix traded as high as 700 back then? This company, with huge pricing power and a full set of content coming out post-COVID, had a stock down 50% at its lows last week. 50% that was cut in half. What else? Just when we thought that the bulls had deserted Tesla, we got a new convert, Credit Suisse. Incredibly thoughtful piece about how Tesla's still the real winner in what could arguably call the newest industrial revolution. The end of the internal combustion engine and the use, the rise of electric vehicles. Great hold to buy. And what may have been the exact bottom of growth, perhaps the appearance this morning, this very morning, on Squawk Box, of Matthew Tuttle, the creative guy who fathered an ETA, ETF that bets against Kathy Wood, or Woods, as he called her, with a fund that had gained 61% since the peak of growth investing in November. Bulls make money, bears make money, but pigs? Slaughtered. 
How long can this growth rebound rally last? Arguably, as long as value stocks have to deal with supply chain, semiconductors, and COVID worries, they remain naughty. Plus, there's been a virtual shutdown of the IPO pipeline, which was filled with all sorts of software as a service analytics companies that save time and labor with real-time dashboarding and great onboarding. SPACs, they're now being bashed left and right as waste of our money. Take away the new supply of bad growth that makes nothing Gresham's law or sells next to nothing, and the real growth stocks can shine. Now, I've never been a true believer in this growth versus value dichotomy. I prefer to look for quality companies with great management, regardless of which category they belong to. I don't want companies that make excuses, even when those excuses make sense. Anything that results in a number cut is a nightmare. Beaten rays will always take precedence for me. I want companies that make things and make a lot of money doing so. At this point, there's so much money invested in value stocks that it won't be an overnight shift. And I'm sure some industrials have been able to overcome the problems. Otis Elevator had no supply chain or semiconductor issues. They reported some numbers today that were initially looked down upon because of some Chinese order weakness. But then the stock snapped right back. I think that's because it didn't have these curses. But I'm betting that's a rarity. Meanwhile, two big semis, Cirrus Logic and NXPI, both reported fantastic quarters tonight. Unlike three weeks ago, these were immediately greeted with higher prices in the aftermarket. The bottom line, if you want a value stock here, pick one where we know there aren't any supply chain, semiconductor, or COVID woes. Otherwise, it's going to be tough without owning some predictable, profitable growth. George in California. George. Hey, Jim, thanks for your valuable work on behalf of retail investors. I'm a charter member of the CNBC Investing Club, and the information from members is excellent. Oh, you're terrific. I hope you watch the 1020 morning meeting. We have such a good time doing it. I do. It's terrific. Oh, fantastic. Thank you. Fantastic. Thank you. And look forward to maybe this later this week when we have our call. What's going on? So my question is about semiconductor maker Skyworks Solutions. The company did very well last year, but with Apple as one of its largest customers, how at risk is Skyworks if Apple, as reported in the press, plans to replace Skyworks chips with Apple's own chips? Well, look, that's always a, uh, that's always a probability. Skyworks is doing incredibly well. Liam Griffin is doing incredibly well. I'd like to think that, given what I've seen from Cirrus Logic at NXP Semi, that you can own Skyworks here. So I would own it going into the quarter, which is later this week, on the 3rd. How about Patricia in Illinois? Patricia. Hi, Jim. Investment Club member. Oh, thank just you. Wanted to say, just wanted to tell you quickly that your wife is a lucky woman to be married to such a smart guy. <laughs> Well, that's very cool. I may have to just record that and put it on Twitter where where she will most certainly not see it. Go ahead. (laughs) My stock is skin. You recommended it about six months ago. I bought it at about 17. It's trading today at 1420. Should I buy more or just hold? I actually went to my unbelievably brilliant dermatologist this weekend to say, is this thing, does this thing work? The, The actual device they have, she said, is terrific. The stock is a SPAC. And because it's a SPAC, it goes down. I think had they bought this through a traditional IPO, it would do well. But I know this, Beauty Healthcare does have a real product. It has a new CEO, and I would not sell it at this level, even though it is a SPAC, because it actually may be worth something. Right? I've never been a true believer in this growth versus value dichotomy. I prefer to look for quality companies with great management no matter what category they belong to. 
If you want to pick a value stock here, pick one where there isn't where there aren't supply chain, semiconductor, or COVID woes. There's some out there. Take those. Well, man, tonight, after reporting a top and bottom line beat for the fourth quarter, could Colin Frost Bankers be the regional bank that could continue to work in this market? I like these guys. I'm checking in with the company's top brass. And what effects could quantitative easing have on a host of commodities? I'm going off the charts to find out, and it's a little different than you thought. Plus, Silvergate Capital has uh, tied itself to crypto. But given the recent volatility in the space, what should you make of the legacy bank now? I've got the CEO. So stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1 800 743 CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. Fact. Running a business is not getting easier on your wallet. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. Also a fact. Smart businesses are reducing costs and headaches by graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. See how you'll profit with NetSuite, and then you can think of all the ways you could be spending the money you save. Company retreat in Malibu, anyone? By popular demand. NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to NetSuite.com to start saving. When you're hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to connect with candidates faster. Plus, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visited visibility at indeed.com slash mad money. Just go to indeed.com slash mad money right now and support this show by saying you heard about indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash mad money. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. As we close the books when in January, pretty much on a high note. Maybe just spend less time wringing our hands about the stocks that are down significantly and more time focused on the ones that are up. Take Colin Frost Bankers, the Texas-based regional bank that's the number one player in San Antonio and Corpus Christi. We know the regional banks make more money when the Fed starts tightening. And in the case of Colin Frost, they're already in great shape. Last Thursday, this bank reported an excellent quarter, sent the stock surging 4%. Wouldn't be surprised if it's got more room to run. Don't take it from me. Let's check in with Phil Green. He's the chairman and CEO of Colin Frost Bankers. Get a better read on the quarter. What comes next? Mr. Green, welcome back to Mad Money. 
Hey, thanks, Jim. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Sure. Well, I'm very excited about your expansion. We know when we saw each other last about how great things were going in some of your markets. I remember talking about San Antonio, which is fantastic. But now, Houston, Dallas, how is this working? These are important markets. They really are. These markets are really tremendous. I think some of the best banking markets in the U.S. We've been in both of the markets, but we really needed to be much larger. And we decided in 2018 to undertake an expansion, which would basically double our footprint of physical locations over a two-year period. We we finished that in 2020 and announced that we'd be doing the same thing, except we'll be tripling our number of locations in our Dallas market for an additional 30 locations there thing to remember about Houston is it's exceeded our pro formas. We were about 113% of our deposit pro forma. We're about 178% of our loan pro forma and about 130% of our household pro forma. So things have gone very well for us there. Now, we know that a lot of banks have gotten quite used to this. When they want to go to an area, they buy another bank. You have chosen an organic strategy. Why is that superior? You know, the reason that we decided to do it was because we had invested in our business enough so that we demonstrated we were growing customers. If our organic business had not been growing, the next page in anybody's playbook is let's buy somebody, roll something up and maybe it works out. But we had we had made the investments. We had had the the success. And so anytime you do acquisitions, particularly in a market where we already were, we risked diluting our brand, diluting our culture, and diluting our value proposition. And also with investing, as I call it, with our income statement as opposed to our balance sheet, we allow the benefit of this strategy to go to our shareholders who are current shareholders that have allowed us to grow into a company that can grow organically as opposed to paying that to somebody else. And so we decided we'd run with that, and it's turned out to be successful for us. Now, you have had a terrific exposure to oil and gas, up to about 11%. I want that when I see oil where it is. But I also see so many people migrating to Texas. Do they know your bank if they go there? Do they want a Texas bank if they put roots down? We found that we've had great customer growth, and we hope that we're reaching an inflection point. Let me give you a few data points on our consumer growth, which would include people that are moving to Texas. We were up by, in the 2021, we exceeded our full year record of new relationships by 200 and, well, it was 210% of that record, which was pre-COVID 2019. We grew 14% in just the Houston market, for example. So we're seeing people migrate into Texas, and we're seeing people accept the, the frost value proposition, and we're expecting to see more of that. We grew 27,000 consumer relationships in 2021. Now, you, there was a moment in the conference call where you did talk about how uh, there are many, many competitors to some of these markets and about how you lost 64 percent of the deals this quarter. I've never heard anyone actually say, hey, you know what? We didn't win this many. You talk, that's a, a badge of what? That you will not lend to sit to people where you might have a chance that you lose? Well, what it means is we'll lose a deal on structure rather than price. We were price competitive, but, you know, I like to say there is no green pasture on the other side of the fence of great credit quality. It's a wasteland out there. And so we'll we'll lose a deal on structure. We don't like to lose on price. And things are getting more competitive. 
I think compared to last year, of the deals we lost, about mid 50, say 55% of the deals we lost were on structure. It's about 65% this year. So it's getting a little bit more competitive out there as people reach for structure in order to get asset yield. All right. And then I also noticed that you are paying more to get people. Uh, that's now part of what I keep hearing. Where are you on inflation, sir? Does it, is it, does it have to just keep going up and up? You know, we're, we've been hearing about inflation on Main Street for a long time now. In fact, that's one of the reasons we decided to continue to build our liquidity for the advent of higher interest rates, because we really just saw that they, they had to happen. I'm not so concerned about the things like supply chain and those kinds of things. I'm really more concerned, and I think the biggest concern of our customers is in labor. It's in people. How do you get people? Because you can make a new trend. You can make a new chip, but they're not making any new 21-year-olds. I think it still takes 21 years to make them. And so uh, you're seeing labor costs go up, and that's that's really where I think We've seen inflation set in in the most fundamental way. Well, I like your strategy. I've always liked your bank. I love those new areas and how you're doing it. So it's not like you buying somebody else's not so great assets. And I want to thank you for coming on the show. You've just you've done so well for your shareholders. Bill Green, chairman and CEO of Cullen Foss Bankers. Good to see you, sir. Good to see you, Bill. Thank you. Yeah. This is a great bank in a great market. That's what you need to look for. Not all big money center banks are as good as some of these trivial regions. They have money's back in the break. Coming up, options trading should be handled with care. Care to learn how to play this market? Kramer goes off the charts. Next. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. we got a counterintuitive piece here for you. For the last couple of months, everyone's been terrified that the Federal Reserve's new attitude is going to lay waste to the stock market, right? I think that could be too simplistic. If you want to understand what the Fed's new tightening cycle means for all sorts of assets, you need to know the history. And history tells us that things don't fall apart simply because our central bank has taken its foot off the gas pedal. That's why tonight we're going off the charts with the help of Carly Garner. She's that brilliant technician who's the co-founder of the Carly Trading and the author of Higher Probability Commodity Trading. Because we need a better sense of what happens at this point in the cycle. I mean, I hear views all over the place. Let's take a look. She points out that even though the Fed is tapering back its bond purchases, we've had two years of massive quantitative easing. When the Fed pumps billions of dollars of liquidity to the economy by buying all sorts of bonds. The taper means these purchases have slowed, but according to Jay Powell, they're not going away until March at the earliest. And if history is any guide, Garner believes that the overhang from a bazooka blast of quantitative easing can last not for months, but for years. Why? Because QE massively increases the supply of money. And when there's lots of money floating around, you tend to get higher asset prices. In other words, maybe it's time to stop worrying and learn to love the stock market and the commodity markets and even the bond market. Remember, quantitative easing is something relatively new. We've never had it before the financial crisis. Then the Fed stopped doing it in 2014 before bringing it back again in 2020 when COVID nearly destroyed the economy. So in terms of monetary policy, Garner thinks the current moment feels a lot like where we were a few years after the financial crisis. 
2010-2011 is her analogy. This was a period where when the Fed injected massive liquidity into the economy and nearly all asset prices moved higher together. Now, I want you to take a look at the monthly chart of the Goldman Sachs Commodity Index going back to late 2005, okay? Back in 2010, we had an explosive move higher in commodity prices right there. Corn, soybean, wheat, oil, natural gas, gold, silver. And, of course, that strength also extended into stocks and even U.S. Treasuries, in part because there was so much money floating around the system. Now, fast forward to today. It's now been almost two years since J-Pal pulled out the quantitative easing bazooka to deal with the COVID crisis. If history's any guy, Garner suspects we could be in for a period similar to 2010 to 2012, when all assets increased in value at some point, occasionally at ridiculous levels. Even with the Fed taking its foot off the gas pedal, Garner thinks it could take another year or maybe two before we digest all that liquidity that's been created since 2020, which is where this was initiated. Now, let me give you an example. I want you to check out the monthly chart of corn, okay, corn over the last 20 years. After the financial crisis, we see corn made a run from $3 to 8 bucks. all right, partially fueled by quantitative easing. Garner points out that we saw a similar rally in corn prices last year, followed by a period of consolidation. She thinks corn could be headed for round two of that rally later this year, just like how in 2012 we got round two of the post-financial crisis rally. Of course, some commodities... They've already run. Now, I want you to take a look at this. This is a weekly chart of oil, which is up to $88 a barrel today. Garner notes the crude is already nearing overbought status, and that's the RSI that we look at, okay, uh, it, the Relative Strength Index. It's an important momentum indicator, which suggests that the upside could be limited at this point. She also sees a potentially powerful ceiling of resistance around $90. Also, when you look at the commodities, of, uh, uh, the Futures Trading Commission's, the COT report that she showed us, most large speculators are already long here. Historically, that often means we could be approaching a peak because eventually you run out of buyers. In a normal correction, Garner wouldn't be surprised to see oil pulling back to 71. And if it breaks down below that level, it might get to 62. But again, because of quantitative easing overhang, she wouldn't expect it to get much worse than that. If Garner's right, by the way, that oil's gotten ahead of itself, and that's a bold contrarian call, then think about what would happen. The Fed would be winning its fight against inflation. A big decline in oil prices might translate into fewer rate hikes. That's something that the bears never think about. What else could work here? While Garner thinks oil's gotten ahead of itself, she actually says precious metals like gold and silver could have substantially more room to run. Nobody likes those that I know. That's exactly what we saw in 2010-2011. Just look at the monthly chart of silver. It never really recovered to anywhere close to those levels. Now, check out the weekly chart of this is the most counterintuitive of all. iShares 20 plus year's treasury bond ETF. And that's the ticker here is TLT. That's what people all call it, TLT. Right now, Wall Street has gotten pretty darn bearish on bond prices, right? Because lower prices translate to higher bond yields. And that's exactly what you're supposed to get when the Fed is talking about raising interest rates. However, despite this pullback, Garner notes that U.S. Treasuries are still in a long-term bull market. And the TLT is holding up nicely right above a powerful flow of uh, of support. That's the floor right there, okay? While Wall Street has already baked in the prospect of several rate hikes here, Garner, she's not convinced. If J-PAL takes the Janet Yellen approach to tightening, those rate hikes could play out over a course of years, not months, as most investors now seem to expect. Remember, what she's saying is what I was saying at the top, which is you just can't just necessarily think that everything is going to collapse. Again, I want you to go to the history. In 2011, the TLT rallied from 90 to 124, okay? 
this is, this is a little bit before this, but to 19, uh, with the help of quantitative easing. And even with the taper right now, the Fed is still buying treasuries through March. I think Powell doesn't want to get as aggressive as Wall Street's expecting. And in that case, we could see a rally in treasury prices this year as investors realize he's being more measured with his rate hikes. And no one's thinking that. How about this stock market? All right, take a look at this monthly chart of the S&P 500 over the last couple of decades. In the short run, Garner says the S&P still looks like it has room to, to, to move lower. Okay, so that's that little break right there. She thinks that's going to happen. But once we work out some of the froth, she thinks there's a good chance we won't have a severe decline this early in the tightening cycle because there's still so much liquidity in the system. Remember, when the Fed started raising rates last time in late 2015, we caught some early volatility. But then the S&P resumed its long march higher because we already have seen to priced in several rate hikes in advance, Garner thinks we're headed for a period where bad news for the economy is good news for the stock market because weak economic data means the Fed won't have to raise interest rates as aggressively as we expect. And by the way, when we get weak economic data, what does work? Growth stocks. Again, though, Garner says we could still take a serious short-term hit before things stabilize. Be aware of that. The S&P 500 has a floor running between 3,900 to 4,000. But that's down at least 11% from where we are now. That's a big hit. Once the finally we get that shakeout over, though, she's optimistic that the medium to long-term future for stocks is pretty good. In short, just because the monetary stimulus is over, that doesn't mean commodities and stocks won't continue to be propped up by the increased money supply. The Fed may be tapping the brakes here, but as Garner sees it, we're merely decelerating from an already very fast situation. And we know from the last cycle that the after effects of quantitative easing can linger for years. The bottom line, the charts in the history as interpreted by Carly Garner suggest that 2022 could be a strong year for most commodities, the bond market and even the stock market. Even with the Fed hitting the brakes, she thinks the momentum from the last couple of years of money printing will continue to push these asset classes higher. Something, frankly, almost no one is predicting. Let's go to Forrest in Florida, please. Forrest. Hey, Jim, I'm a longtime follower, and I really like the morning meetings. Oh, thank you. The 1020 with me and with Jeff Marks. I'm glad you're, you're I want everybody to get in on the club and watch these because we really tell a pretty good story together. What's going on? Hey, next there bounced 8 percent today, but it's still down 15 percent on the month. Utilities don't usually act this way. What's going on with next era? Well, I tell you, that is. Jeez. I mean, I know that a lot of the utilities have been running. I was running Con Ed. I just think that they're doing um, that got an EV charging network that we knew from a long time ago. That could be it. But the main thing, I mean, that's a nationwide. And they're talking about a hydrogen fuel network, too. All I know is, is that this is a fantastic forward thinking utility that has done a lot of stuff with charging and it can be bought still. Jay in Wisconsin. Jay. Booyah, Kramer. Jay in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and I was calling about Cortara Energy, CTRA, formerly Cabot Oil and Gas, and I was wondering what your opinion is. Oh, I like these guys so much. For earnings in Uh, uh, February. You can buy it. I like them very, very much. It's a great combination, a really well. Tom Jordan used to come on the show. We have to get Tom Jordan back on the show. He is a fantastic CEO. You've got a winner there. So anyway, Kotara is a buy right here, right now. If history is any guide, 2022 could be a strong year for most commodities, the bond market, and even the stock market. The charts interpreted by Carly Garner suggest that momentum from the last couple of years of money printing will continue to push these asset classes higher. Now, doesn't that make some sense? 
Hey, much more mad money, including my exclusive with Silvergate Capital. Could a bank with a crypto connection be worth looking at at this market? I'm talking to the CEO. Then, the weekend, uh, this weekend, I opined about the Fed on Twitter. And I'm discussing why I think betting against the Fed chief will continue to be a fool's earn. I'm feeling mighty lonely on that one. And all your calls rapid fire in tonight's edition of the Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. As cryptocurrencies have become increasingly mainstream, some legitimate financial institutions have begun to embrace the crypto economy. Take Silvergate Capital, which is a small traditional bank based in Southern California. But in 2013, these guys became the first mover in the cryptocurrency universe. They now got a 24-7 payments platform where their customers can transfer both real currency and crypto assets like Bitcoin. They even offer U.S. dollar loans that are backed by Bitcoin. And there's been some speculation that Silvergate may launch its own stablecoin. We've got to find out about that, especially since they just bought some crypto technology from Facebook's cryptocurrency project, Diem. This is a very unusual behavior for a bank. Most players in the industry have avoided crypto like the plague. But it's been terrific for Silvergate stock, which has surged from the single digits in March of 2020 to 107 and changed today. Of course, it was well over $200 in November before the growth stock meltdown. Still, I think this is a very intriguing story. Albeit one where we have a lot of questions because the regulatory issues here are pretty thorny. So let's take a closer look with Alan Lane, the president and CEO of Silvergate Capital, to learn more. Mr. Lane, welcome to Mad Money. Uh, thanks. Thanks for the opportunity, Jim. It's great to be here. Well, first, I think we I, uh, congratulations are in order. I've got a release in front of me. Silvergate purchases uh, the blockchain payment network assets from Diem. Can you tell us what you've got with those? And uh, I don't know whether you're allowed to reveal how much it costs, but how much do you think it's worth? Sure. Well, um, we think the the potential worth is is off the chart um, when when we think about using the blockchain technology uh, for for payments and remittance. Uh, the, the U.S. dollar-backed stablecoin industry today has well over $100 billion um, in dollars trading across the blockchain. However, that is primarily used for cryptocurrency trading. And where we see the opportunity in the future is, as I mentioned, for payments and remittance, um, global remittance. And we think the opportunity is, is just huge. Now, the... Theoretically, since Facebook was involved, they must have had just tremendous intellectual property that you got here. That would take you a very long time to develop otherwise. Yeah, that that is really um, at the heart of of, uh, of what we acquired today is the the um, the technology, the the you know the, essentially the the proprietary. There's proprietary technology, Jim, and then there's open source technology, okay. and you put those two together. Um, for a regulated financial institution, um, you know, it's very important that, that we satisfy all of the regulatory requirements. But it also, you know, it also has to be um, able to be used around the world. And as you mentioned, the, the, the Facebook engineers that developed this over the last couple of years are, are truly world-class engineers. And, um, you know, we don't, we don't have a direct relationship with Facebook. We were working last year with, with DM. And uh, we, we got to know the team really well, and uh, we couldn't be more excited to be taking, you know, essentially taking the reins and um, and and bringing a stablecoin to market. Um, hopefully later this year. Right, no, I, I have my money at a traditional bank, and I asked them to let me transfer my Ethereum there. I just wanted it under one roof, and they said, "I'm sorry, we won't deal with Ethereum." Uh, 
why is Silvergate so open to dealing with both regular people doing regular banking and crypto? And yet the institutions that I talk to just think it's an anathema. Yeah, it's a great question, Jim. And, and, and what you're pointing to is really where we saw the opportunity back in 2013. I joined Silvergate in 2008. And at the time, we were a privately owned bank with a, a little under $300 million in assets. Today, we're over $16 billion in assets. Um, but importantly, um, at, we were growing um, pretty nicely during the, you know, the first five, six years um, you know, after I joined the bank. And we were struggling to to find deposits um, to keep up with our loan growth, and that was really where we saw an opportunity because there were there were legitimate Bitcoin related companies. This was 2013, so mm-hmm. it was before you, you know you just you just mentioned Ethereum. Ethereum wasn't even um, issued yet when we got into this business, and and I think that's really key. Our customers have come to really rely on us because. We got in way back in 2013, started banking the institutional community, folks, you know, the, the institutional investors, the uh, cryptocurrency exchanges, and um, brought a regulated framework to this industry. And, um, and we've become a little bit of a good housekeeping seal of approval for, for the cryptocurrency industry. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that because what I want... I want two things. One is I want a stable coin and I want it to be from an outfit that the that the Federal Reserve would recognize and think that it could be uh, good. And then another thing I want is that the CFTC or the SEC would like the stable coin. I feel like right now the stable coin is unstable and I, almost to the point where I wish we had Federal Reserve protection. I think that Silvergate may be if you do it, you could own that market. Well, sure. Uh, you know, I think what you're pointing to is, is the fact that there are existing uh, stablecoin projects in the market. Right. Um, some some that are more trusted than others. Um, we happen to bank all of the regulated stablecoin issuers in the United States. They all use the SEN, which is our proprietary platform. It's a it's a global payments pro- platform. Um, the acronym is the SEN. We call it the Silvergate Exchange Network. And it allows our customers to, to transact 24 hours a day, seven days a week around the globe. And the existing stablecoin issuers use the SEND for the minting and burning, the creation and the redemption of those stablecoins. But again, those are primarily used for a cryptocurrency trading. And where we see the opportunity is creating a stablecoin that could be used um, by folks like you and me to to pay for things. It was it's kind of the original promise of Bitcoin, um, but right. but folks don't want to be spending their Bitcoin with all that volatility. Um, right. And but the blockchain technology is here, and and um, you know so we think that's that's what a Silvergate issued stablecoin uh, totally can one, provide. One last question: Now the stock did get hit Fed tightening. People felt that maybe you should have benefited. To me, uh, the stock's down so much. This is really. Uh, a, a good bank that also has crypto as opposed to a bank that I should necessarily uh, gauge uh, everything by the interest margin, which is not what I necessarily want Silvergate for. Fair? Yeah. So um, it's an interesting question because um, from a traditional banking lens, you know, 99.5% of our deposits are non-interest bearing. OK. Um, and so that that is I, I think it's it's um, I'm, I'm not sure if there are any banks out there that actually have 100 percent. So we're pretty darn close. 
Um, and, and But the primary reason um, that our deposits are non-interest bearing is because our customers are relying on the liquidity that we provide over the Silvergate yes. Exchange Network and the ability to move that money 24-7. And so consequently, we keep those funds very short um, you know, in terms of duration, in right. terms of how we invest them. Um, but importantly, in a rising interest rate environment, our, our earnings um, should, should, um, should do really well. All right. This is terrific. I'm so glad you came on. Uh, regards, of course, to Dennis Frank, chairman. I knew it very long time at Goldman Sachs and it's sensational. That's Alan Lane, president and CEO of Silvergate Capital. Guys, I like this one as the way to be able to uh, have a stock a lot, a lot more than I guess candidly Coinbase. Thank you so much, sir. Great to see you. Thank you, Jim. Great to be here. Yeah. May have money's back after the break. Coming up next. Let's make money together. What do we got? Kramer's bringing the thunder and answering your burning questions in today's edition of The Lightning Round. All right, before we start the lightning round, I want to invite you to a really exciting event. This Friday, we're hosting the second ever CNBC Investing Club monthly meeting. We're breaking down every stock in the charitable trust, taking your calls, and speaking to a very special CEO guest. This Friday, 12.30 p.m., go to cnbc.com slash join the club for Friday if you want to be part of the action. And now it is time. It's over the lightning round. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Ski daddy time the lightning round. Let's start with Kenneth in New York. Kenneth. Hey, Jim. How you doing, brother? I am doing well. How about you? I'm doing okay. I just wanted to ask your thoughts on the Dover Corporation, ticker symbol D-O-V. Yeah, I liked I liked the quarter. You know, we're looking for companies that make things and do stuff, but you know, it does have some of these industrial problems that others have. But I, I'm going to say you can hold on to it. Gary in Missouri, Gary. Yes, Jim, long time viewer, first time caller. Thank you. I got a question about proficient. I bought a, um, some of it in my Roth a couple years ago, and it got a forty dollars cost base on it. And last year it had a crazy year. And then start selling off, and I want to think, want to know what you think about it. Well, now. this is one of those companies that sells it, it, it sells it sixty times earnings, and we have been saying that unless it sells below fifty times earnings, which is still a great deal, we cannot recommend it. It's just not going to fit our parameters. Let's go to Brian in New Jersey. Brian, booyah from uh, the Garden State, Jim. Fantastic to be home. What's going on? So I'm looking at uh, MCLH, Norwegian Cruise Line. I understand it's not profitable at the moment, but obviously right. when you're looking at some companies, looking at them when they're a little bit dark and gloomy before they're coming out, obviously if COVID recesses is going to be hopefully beneficial. Just like to know your opinion on this position. Look, it is my favorite. Uh, I have to tell you that, that all these companies need such a break. I just don't know whether they're going to get it in time to make it so that they're good stocks. They'll all make it. But I don't know if they're going to be good stocks. Let's go to Steve in Pennsylvania. Steve. Oh, yeah, Jim. A pleasure talking to you. I'm a Safe. member of the investment club. Yes. My question is on Willis Power Watson. That is a very good insurance broker. I happen to like that business very much. I think that's a stock worth owning. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Okay. 
Okay, I posted a tweet this weekend that I didn't really expect to be all that controversial. Fascinating that not a strategist I read has said that Jay can pull this off. It didn't take long for people to second-guess my second-guessing. So let me explain here what I mean. What is Jay Powell even trying to pull off? Simple. He wants to engineer what's known in the business as a soft landing. If you imagine the economy as an airplane, Powell wants to orchestrate a gentle slowdown in inflation at all levels, one that allows him to land the plane with no real turbulence. Most commentators who opine on this strategy have already given up on Powell. They say he's behind the curve, meaning he's failed to raise interest rates fast enough. So now he's going to have to slam the brakes in order to play catch-up, perhaps hitting us with a 50 basis point double rate hike because the economy is so overheated and he's been so wrong. According to these critics, Powell did himself no favors last week when he put out a dovish-sounding statement then sounded quite hawkish during the press conference. The difference in tone has given money managers a lot of room to speculate. Right now, the Treasury market looks to be pricing in at least five rate hikes. Some are saying six because Powell's allegedly behind the curve, or even seven, which would mean a rate hike for each of the FOMC's remaining meetings this year. I beg to differ. Why? First, because Powell learned a great deal from the first tightening cycle he presided over. In 2018, he didn't know the power of his own words. So he caused stock market and economic bedlam when he vowed to hit us with a series of lockstep rate hikes. A few months later, he had to change course because the damage was so severe. He doesn't want that to happen again. This time, I think Powell has made no mistakes of any consequences. His death handling of COVID and his mission to return the economy to full employment have succeeded beyond our wildest expectations. Give him a break. Second, it makes a ton of sense to me that Powell's trying very hard not to lock himself into a particular course of action. I've now listened to all of the important conference calls from this quarter so far, and the three biggest choke points in the economy are the port logjam, the semiconductor shortage, and the amorphous supply chain crisis, which includes lots of COVID-created absenteeism, something that's driven up wages. Let's take them one at a time. As we know from Ryan Peterson, the CEO of Flexport, which monitors the transportation hubs on Los Angeles and uh, Long Beach, many of the issues created higher costs and shipping delays come down to prohibitive contract clauses won by the International Longshoremen and Warehouse Union, probably the last, last powerful union in this country. One amazes go. He told us that they're at the heart of the issue. A simple switch to the underutilized port of Oakland could make a great deal of difference. As far as the trucking shortage, that's because truckers are only paid an average of 66000 a year. It's a really hard job. Pay them more, you'll get more goods moved because you'll get more truckers. These problems are not intractable. In fact, other ports around the world don't have the same problems, even though they're dealing with the same pandemic. Next, the chip shortage has to do with low-end chips that most semiconductor companies stopped making because the profit margins were too low. Again, if companies make long-term deals with semiconductor manufacturers rather than buying chips piecemeal, then the shortages will end. By the way, the chip shortage is already over at Apple. Sure, I know they're the biggest, most powerful client out there. But the fact is they did have a shortage, too. And now they no longer have one. Finally, labor costs. We're just now experiencing a massive cut in benefits at the federal level while the nation is coursing through COVID. Families just took a huge hit when the child care tax credit expired, which may force people back to work. As for COVID, we know that quarantining has been a stupendously bad problem for businesses, right along with people being let go because they refuse to get vaccinated. Once Omicron runs its course, as it has in New York, the first place to get COVID en masse, I think these problems could go away. And look, there are a lot of other things that could help stamp out inflation. Plastic plants coming back online in the Gulf at last. The possibility of a collapse in some commodities that have gotten ahead of themselves, like oil, as Carly Garner speculated earlier in the show. But the point is that J-PAL cares more about engineering a soft landing than being behind the curve. And he's got more aces in his hand than his legion of critics seem to believe. 
I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise you try to find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer. See you tomorrow. The news with Shepard Smith starts now. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.